0: Welcome to the I Believe Podcast, an Cure Insight production, brought to you by CASEL Biosciences. I'm your host, Danae Peterson, a fellow ocular melanoma survivor. Here on the podcast, we'll be sharing information and insights on treatments, research, and living with ocular melanoma. CASEL Biosciences tests are designed to provide clinicians precise and personalized tumor information for the benefit of patient care. If you would like more information about how CASEL is transforming the treatment of eye cancer, visit castletestinfo.com. Ted Dropcho is a palliative care physician practicing at Virginia Mason Medical Center in Seattle. He serves patients with serious illnesses and their families. He finds meaning in his work through focusing on patients' priorities and values to help navigate their courses with serious illness. He and the other members of the palliative care team give additional support to patients and their care networks, and they treat symptoms to improve quality of life. He trained at the internal medicine at Indiana University before coming to University of Washington for his Hospice and Palliative Medicine Fellowship. We're so excited to have Dr. Dropshill with us, um, and as you're listening to the session, if you think of questions, you can write them down on the papers, and then at the end, we'll have a few minutes just to go over um some of the questions. Okay, thank you.
1: All right. Well, hi everybody. Thank you so much for being here, and thanks for inviting me to come speak at this. I'm Ted Dropshow. Um, I am a palliative care physician, and just just so I can know who's here in the room with us. Um, you know, if if you're a patient, can you raise your hand? Great. And if you're a family friend or caregiver, okay, excellent. And just. Um, If if you're here from the Puget Sound region, can I just see a show of hands for that? Okay, coming from farther away, out of state? A lot of hands, okay, great. Um, Well, that's great. Thanks so much for being here. And so I'll try to tailor my talk and just include some regional differences that I know about here. So can we go to the next slide, please? Great, thanks. So just a little bit about me, Um, so again, I, I, I work here in Seattle at a hospital called Virginia Mason Medical Center. Um, I trained in internal medicine in Indiana and then did my fellowship out here in hospice and palliative medicine. Um, you know, I, My work, I, I really find my work meaningful. Um, I love getting to know patients and their families and friends. Um, it, it's a pretty intimate relationship that I enter into with people rather quickly and um, that's rewarding. And also there's a pretty big hole in medicine um for folks with advanced illness you know a lot of attention gets spent on curing illness and um uh and there's a lot more publicity about that there's not quite as much attention giving to the caregiving aspect of it and when we're in a a different phase of life and so i really feel like i'm filling a niche um when i'm uh, doing my work so it's very meaningful for me um i live here with my wife and our dog There's my wife right there. Uh, She's also an ophthalmologist and that's some of my connection to this talk. Uh, Love spending time with my dog, Wally. He looks like he's adoring me there, but I'm just holding a sandwich. Uh, So we like spending time with him and we enjoy hiking. This is a hike we recently took uh, to the enchantments here locally. And it was just a beautiful day for most of it. Um, Next slide, please. So, you know, what we'll be covering today, as I mentioned, Palliative care, hospice care, it doesn't get a lot of airtime and a lot of discussion. Um, So I really want to give you guys information so that you can be advocates for yourself within the healthcare system. Um, Hospice has been around for scores of decades. That's a pretty well um, uh, established thing. You know, there's Medicare benefits and all of that for it. Palliative care is a newer specialty. Uh, Probably in the last 20 years or so it's come about and it's really only been board certified for the last 10 to 15 years. Um, So if if your oncologist trained in the 1990s, they probably didn't interact with palliative care very much in training. So this is why I want to give you information so that you can also be an advocate for yourself in this. Um, I want to differentiate between palliative medicine and hospice care. Um, Those two often get conflated and they are separate. Um, I want to talk about how you might get either service involved, um, share some of the common preparatory work that people do when they have serious illness, um, if we have time towards the end, I might breeze through just an example of somebody's course when they end up involving palliative care and hospice, um, hospice care in their care plan. And throughout the talk, I really want to address your questions. I know, I know we've got some time at the end, but if there's something where early on something seems really confusing, please raise your hand and ask a clarification question. Um, I could talk about this in, all day, but that doesn't really matter unless you're getting something out of it, so um, just let me know if, if we're losing the thread a little bit. Sound reasonable? Okay. All right. Next slide, please. So first, I just want to start off with some gratitude to you all for being here and being here online. Um, this isn't really an easy thing to hear about and to think about for your own life, um, how it might interact with you in your own unique way. Um, so I just want to express some gratitude for how, for being here, empowering yourself, you know, this is a really important topic for you to discuss with your friends and your family, you know, those people who are in your life. Um, and to revisit as time goes on, you know, it's not something that you have to think about every minute of every day. You you could close the box, put it away and just continue on with all the other things in your life. But I just want to say thank you for being here and being part of this. Okay. Next slide. So palliative medicine, I'll start off with that. Next slide. Um, I'll put things in orange that I think are my biggest takeaways from this. Um, there's going to be a lot of information that i give you today. Um, so I, you know, if you just get some general orientation to these two service lines and then have further discussions as it goes along, that'd be great. So palliative care is for people with serious illness who may still be receiving life-prolonging treatments, and I want to break this down a little bit. You know, when I talk about serious illness, I'm thinking of folks who have cancer that's incurable, people who have heart or lung disease that's really impacting their daily life, uh, people with liver disease that's causing them to come back and forth from the hospital, or people who've had big strokes that are going to change the rest of their life after that. I see patients who are in the ICU with acute illness um, that's pretty serious. So there's a whole range of different um, illnesses. So. while we'll be talking a lot about ocular melanoma, this talk is applicable to every one of us in the room. Um, So those are the folks uh, who I think palliative care is appropriate for. And when I talk about life prolonging treatments, I'm thinking about things like cancer treatments, things that are aimed at treating cancer, going back and forth from the hospital, um, or things like even receiving um, life support like ventilators. So palliative care sees patients who are getting all those different forms of life prolonging treatments. Um, Why why do we only see people with serious illness? Um, You know, I I don't see patients who are otherwise healthy walking into the emergency room with a pneumonia, who are gonna get an antibiotic or have a couple days in the hospital and then leave. The reason why I see folks with serious illness is that it tends to play out where the benefits of life-prolonging treatments tend to be smaller or less readily felt, uh, and the complications or the harms or the risks tend to be more prominent and more prominently felt. So that risk-benefit ratio is a lot muddier that rather than just saying, oh, you're walking to the ER, that's consent, let's just keep going. So um, we really want to come up with a tailored plan for each person uh, when it's so unclear a way to go. Um, next slide, please. So what we do in palliative care is we really work in three three big ways. Um, The first way is we help to create a care plan uh, that's based on your priorities, and I'll break these down a little more. We can help out with some advanced symptom management, um, and we can also provide extra support for patients and their loved ones. I'm not gonna talk too much about our symptom management today. I think a lot of the symptom management, particularly with ocular melanoma, I think the ophthalmologist has a big role in that. But for all those other diseases, often a cardiologist can help out or an oncologist can help out, and we can be an extra support in that if needed. Um, So I won't focus too much on that today. Next slide. So there's a lot of words on this slide, um, but I just want to show this as an example. So when we talk about creating a care plan that's based on your priorities and your values, I've got to find out what those are. Um, and so that's a conversation that's often happened. I had this conversation with folks sometimes, um, really urgently in an ICU with families. Uh, but it can also be something that happens a little more slowly and over multiple visits in the clinic. Um, so this is based on these seven domains of palliative care is something that I learned at my fellowship at university of Washington from a, um, from a person named Stu Farber. Who's kind of a pioneer in this Um, i'm a disciple of his disciples um but i'm going to spend a little bit of time on this and just give some examples of information that's really important that i can learn from these questions so you know an opener like what's a normal day like for you what do you enjoy doing i might hear things like i love my job or my favorite thing is to sit and watch movies with my family or i'd like to sit in my yard and kind of putz about and uh slowly you know, remove weeds, but never get the job done. Um, or somebody might tell me my quality of life has been, been really poor for years. Um, I can't do any of the things I enjoy. And that's really gonna be important for us to know about what we're working towards and where we're starting from. So I wanna know that information. I also wanna know and make sure that we're on the same page. Is, your, is the status of your medical condition clear? Is your prognosis five weeks or five years? The answer to every question I'm going to ask you is going to be different based on if you're thinking on the scale of weeks versus years. Um, For other diseases, you know, am I going to need to have repeated hospitalizations going forward? Or if you've had a stroke, um, is it a realistic expectation that I'll walk again? But that that matters to a lot of folks. And so I want to know the answers to those questions. Um, Other things I ask, what are you hoping for going forward from here? Some people tell me there's a wedding in three months that even if I could just watch it over Zoom, that'd be wonderful. Or some people want to say, I I really want to walk again. Um, Other people, a lot of people tell me, I want to leave my family on really financially good footing, and I don't want to be spending all my money on health care. And that's important for us to know. Those are all really um, important factors. I also ask, what are you worried about? Commonly, folks worry about pain, rightfully so. Um, sometimes people tell me, you know, I I don't want my kids to have to wipe my behind as we go forward from here. You know, people really value some independence and, you know, a sense of dignity in that. Or they worry, how is my spouse going to cope? And, you know, we don't want to make assumptions about any of these things. So we need to ask these questions, uh, to learn that about you. Um, another important question is, have you ever seen somebody go through an illness like this? Um, You know, ocular melanoma is relatively rare, and I'm so glad that you're here today with people, and and you can share stories and and learn from each other and uh, learn more about that. But if you've never seen somebody have a cancer diagnosis, this is all foreign territory. I was just in the hospital with somebody, and um, they're telling me, yes, this is the first time I've ever been in a hospital in my life. Um, It's like, oh, so you don't know what any of this chaos around you right now is. So that's just important for us to know so we can best minister to you. Um, or have you seen medical teams be wrong? Very often? people tell me my nephew is giving given you know days to live, and here we are ten years later, in a very different situation, he's still alive so um and then lastly, how can we best communicate with you um i it, it's what I always want to avoid is telling a person who's maybe confused and their supportive spouse isn't present there some serious news, and then they don't remember it, and it never goes through, you know, we want to be communicating with you as a, as a family unit or, you know, with, with your circle of, of loved ones. Um, so that, that's just important for us to know as well. And then I think I skipped one. Where do you go for support and where do your supports go for support? Um, we have supportive members as part of our team. I'll talk about that in a moment, but we can also help point you in directions for additional support. So I know that's a lot on that slide, um, but this is my standard usually my first visit that I have with folks and other people will do this in different ways. You know, you can actually just have a conversation and learn a lot of this information, but this is what we wanna know about. Next slide. So just to piggyback on that in terms of the communication, one of the things that I would encourage all of you to do, um, whether you have a serious illness right now or not, um, probably the, the best, Um, advanced care planning you can do is to assign a medical power of attorney or identify who's the legal next of kin in your state. Um, Every state has a legal next of kin hierarchy in Washington state. So what what I'm talking about for this is, you know, we always want the patients to make decisions for themselves. We really believe in autonomy. We want people to make decisions about what happens to their bodies. Um, But sometimes just illness gets in the way of that, whether there's delirium or confusion or some other thing. And so then what we look to is we look to surrogate decision makers, um, to, we ask them, think like the patient, you know, tell us what you would be saying or tell us what the patient would be saying in this situation. And so, um, it's important for you to uh, find out who this person is and let's say, um, uh, you know, in in your state, your, your spouse is deceased or you've got adult children who would be in that hierarchy. If there's something that you don't want to be in that position to speak to your values, it's important to assign a medical power of attorney so that they're not really in that mix. You want to have somebody that you trust, who you think knows your values. In Washington State, the first default person uh, is your spouse, and then it goes to adult children, adult parents, siblings, so there's a whole 10-point hierarchy for it. I would just encourage you all to do this. This is something that you can actually just find online. You can just Google these forms for Washington State Medical Power of Attorney or other states. Um, And often it can just be notarized by two witnesses, usually not the people you're assigning, but, um, or signed off by two witnesses. Thanks. So next slide. So the other big thing that palliative care does is provides an extra layer of support. And so there's physicians, there's social workers, there's Nurses on our teams. Um, so, I, I think one of the benefits of being a healthcare provider and processing some of this is that we're a neutral third party. Um, so it's easier to talk to a stranger sometimes about some of your deepest concerns versus talking to somebody like a very close friend or a loved one who you have, you know, an emotional relationship with, and all these other things at stake with versus a, um, a just an interested third party. So. Um, We can create space for processing of emotions and changes. Um, We can also do empathic and supportive listening. Sometimes it's nice to just be able to think a thought through out loud and have somebody hear it and we can help create space for that. Uh, We can do counseling, reframing, um, providing anticipatory guidance um, of how courses often go because that is one of the things that people tell me is most scary is that they don't know what's going to happen next and so we can help give uh, some guidance there. And then the healthcare system, I probably don't need to tell any of you this, but it's baffling and you need a lot of advocacy to make your way through it. Um, you know, the, the folks working in it are all working really hard and the patients are, and their close ones are all working really hard. It's just there's a lot of flaws in the system. So we can help out with that too. Next slide. So other odds and ends about palliative care. So. Um, we are covered by insurance like other specialists. So if you know, your oncologist or your infectious disease specialists are covered, we're covered too. Um, and generally palliative care operates as a consultative service, meaning um, you keep all your other specialists. So while you're continuing to get cancer treatment, you keep your oncologist, um, you keep your primary care doctor. So it's not some separate Medicare structure bucket that you stay in, you're still in that, usual routine care with us as a different um, specialist involved. I will say there's a fair amount of regional and institutional variability. Part of that is because it is a newer specialty. Uh, There's a few other reasons why that happens. But um, at our system at Virginia Mason, we have inpatient consultation as well as clinic visits and we're embedded in the oncology clinic. Other programs, they also do home visits. Some programs only have inpatients. some programs only have clinics. So that'll be a little bit up to what institution you're working with to find out how they can actually be supportive and and helpful. Um, The team composition varies some, social workers, nurses, physicians, and APPs. APPs are physician assistants and nurse practitioners. Um, Again, the compositions could change here in Seattle, in the kind of south end of Seattle, um, palliative care does some really great things. We increase access to healthcare, we increase quality of care, and we often lower costs for folks too. Um, but what we don't do is generate money for hospital systems. So when hospital systems are struggling, we're often one of the groups to kind of get cut. So um, sometimes there's lower staffing for us. And then different programs will do different things like procedural pain management. Our program, we only do prescriptive uh, medications. We don't do any procedures, but regionally you might find some differences with that too. Um, Can we go to the next slide, please? So, all right, I didn't put a slide about this, but maybe this is the most important information. Um, But just how do you get a hold of us? How do you get a referral to us? And so asking your oncologist for a referral is just fine, or a primary care doctor. We also have patients just call our clinic and self-refer. Um, there might be a little bit of back and forth about whether your particular insurance requires you to get a referral or not. Um, I, don't, I think that that varies insurance to insurance, but um, it can be generated in, in a number of ways. And who should be thinking about us? Um, you know, I mentioned serious illness, so I, I'd say evaluate for yourself, you know, this might be a little difficult to evaluate, but do I have a serious illness, but do I have an unmet need in either some complex decision-making, an unmet need in my symptom management, or an unmet need in support? Um, And if you have one of those, I think you should consider a consult to palliative care. I'll just say in general, um, we have an open understanding with our oncologists at our hospital that we're gonna see every patient uh, who has stage four cancer, meaning metastatic cancer, and I think that that's actually a pretty good policy that if you do have cancer that becomes metastatic, request to be able to be seen by palliative care as well. It might just be a single consultation um, and different cancers are different. You know, We're, we're gonna talk a lot about uveal melanoma, but sometimes breast cancer, even if it's metastatic, there's a whole range of treatments and that is sometimes a very longer prognosis, but um, I'd say that that's one of the other things that I would consider. So I'm going to pause on palliative care. That was a lot of information, um, kind of a brief orientation to what we do. Are there any quick clarification questions before I go on to talk about hospice? Yes, in the back. What's your, what's your actual interactive, interactiveness with Yeah, so, so the question was, what, what is my interactiveness with the medical team? Um, I'd say in some ways we are kind of a team that will take more than the 10,000-foot few. So I'm often somebody who's trying to corral all the specialists um, to get their insight, to get their input on um, what's going on. So I I interact really closely with the oncologist and the folks in our cancer clinic too, too, Um, because sometimes while they're talking about cancer treatment options, sometimes the oncologist is saying a lot of words and it all gets lost in the mix, and I'll often go knock on the door and say, so what you're saying is this in a sentence, and then I'm able to bring that back. So we work really closely with all the other specialists. Yeah, thanks for that question. Yeah. So even to came off with John's question, in part what I'm hearing that your services provide someone is a sense of advocacy
0: to understand when the patient has a long or a big treatment with everybody saying something different.
1: Yes. 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 So uh, the question was a, a clarification on when there is so much, so many different specialists having so many different inputs um, that it, it can be really confusing. We do a lot of that, bringing that information together, helping to put it into, to really, how does that fit with your life? You know, we often talk about uh, losing the, the forest for the trees, and very often when there's a lot of specialists involved and there's a lot of details, all we're doing is pointing at different trees, but we've kind of lost the forest, which is you as a person. So we, by asking those seven questions and having multiple conversations about that, I can get a better sense of the forest. Is that? Yeah. Yeah. And then I have a different Yes. Yep. So the question is about uh, adding us for pain management. That's absolutely correct. That's one of the other things that we do. Um, different programs will have different thresholds. Like our program, we'll not We'll only see patients when they have a serious illness um, you know, or a life-limiting illness, but we'll come on board to help out with pain management. Um, some folks will also do long-term chronic pain, which our, just our personal program doesn't do. Um, So like often for survivorship, if somebody's cured of it, we'll follow them for a time and and then we won't, but yeah. But yes, you can absolutely request us and that it should be one of the big criteria you're thinking about too, is that there's unmet pain needs. And if there's something that we can't do, then we're also just, hey, that's what we're really focusing on. We can pull in a different pain service. So that's where we would help out with advocacy. Mm-hmm. until they've, they've gone through a lot, and then it's like very soon, end of life is soon yeah. is when they're calling. But when when, sh- when is the right scenario to call in palliative care? Yeah, so so the question is, when's the right time to call palliative care? And, um, you know, I, I, I think for for the folks in this room, I if, if you're ever diagnosed with metastatic uveal melanoma, I think that that should be a, a trigger in and of itself. Um, just to to call and it could just be for a consultation um, just to start to meet us Um, i think for other illnesses if there's that unmet symptom need that unmet support need or or if you're finding that um, gosh my illness is just getting more complex and i'm coming in and out of the hospital or i'm coming in and out of the clinic and these treatments don't seem to be doing what i was hoping that they're doing that tells me that that balance of benefit versus, you know, cost or harm of treatment is starting to get less clear. Um, So that's when I would also think of palliative care. And sometimes it's a really acute thing where, you know, if if you come into the hospital with a new sudden illness that causes a whole other host of illnesses that follow that, then that is just something that's generated in the hospital. And um, so there are other pathways. Okay. All right. So we'll we'll keep going here. So next slide, please. Thank you for those questions. So we'll talk about hospice care next. Next slide. So here's what I want you to, so there's two big criteria for hospice care um, to being an appropriate candidate for hospice. So hospice is care for people who are dying and they define that. Insurance, hospice agencies, Medicare, they define that as having a prognosis of six months or less. Estimated prognosis, nobody can tell for sure. What I'll say is when we're looking at prognosis, um, it does tend to be more reliable for cancer diseases. Um, Cancer tends to have a more predictable track compared to something like heart failure or COPD. My own grandmother has heart failure, and she had a a large GI bleed and was in the hospital, and it it looked uh, the situation looked fairly grim. And she stabilized some, and she just home discharged home on hospice. Um, And they switched around just one of her heart meds, and you know it's four years later we unenrolled from hospice, and we're doing okay. Um, That's heart failure. Um, Again, I do think cancer is a bit more predictable, but estimated prognosis. Next slide. So for those folks who have a prognosis of six months or less, um, it's for them and who, if your plan of care, your goals of care also align with the philosophy of hospice. And so this is a really important slide in terms of what is the philosophy of hospice. That is that they're caring for folks who are dying and they wanna provide comfort at the end of life. And that looks like a lot of different things. It looks like symptomatic comfort. Um, it could be that, uh, that grief counseling, that psychosocial, that, Um, that other emotional supportive element of it. A lot of times folks want to be in a certain place or want to get out of the uh, intensive medical care system when they're at the end of life. And so we want to, on hospice, we want to be focusing on giving you care where you want it. That's often at home. So how can we make home successful for whatever time you have left? So I'll talk a little bit about some of the supports that they provide. Um, What they don't do, and this is a really important thing, is that they don't do life prolonging treatments. And so what I mean by that is they don't continue with cancer, active cancer treatments. Sometimes they could do palliative radiation if it's a short course, just aimed to help out with symptoms, but long curative intent palliate radiation they don't do. You don't continue with chemotherapy or immunotherapy. Um, You know, if you have a pneumonia at home while you're on hospice, you don't come back to the hospital for x-rays and antibiotics um, and maybe even getting admitted. If you have that pneumonia, they'll work on treating any pain associated with it, treating any shortness of breath at home, helping out with any anxiety as you die naturally from that pneumonia. So I just it's important to be really clear about what, what that is. Um, and so why, why would somebody choose that? Um, sometimes just the medical reality is that our treatments aren't working. That's often the case when we're in the hospital where we've done a lot of different things and there just really isn't an option um, for their life of of helping somebody live longer. Or when we talk about that balance between benefiting from those treatments versus just feeling their harms or not benefiting anymore, um, and the harms could be pain, it could be the cost, it could be just being away from family and things like that. But if that balance just stops making sense, which a lot of folks do reach that point where they say, you know, I just wanna be at home. I I don't wanna keep doing this. This isn't feeding me anymore. So that's the other time when, when you should really consider hospice. Next slide. So hospice can be done in a number of locations. The most common is at home. It used to be done a lot at hospice facilities where folks would go to die. That's really changed in the last, couple decades so most hospice is done at home uh, and the hospice team it's a visiting care team they're not in the house with you for you know throughout the day they're not even there for four hours every day they're just visiting so at home family and friends are the biggest um, support and the biggest caregivers um, it's not necessarily really active support all the time you know if somebody's able to be up and walk around they can do that Um, but a lot of times as people go through their dying process, they're sleeping more, uh, in bed more. And so it's a lot more of being there to be available if a medication's needed, um, or if somebody drops the remote. Um, so it's not necessarily really all the time, physical caregiving, but it's supported by the hospice team, which there's volunteers, um, other team members, home health aides, and those folks can come out a few times per week to help out with some more of the physical work of caregiving, like, like bathing. The nurse on the hospice team is usually the quarterback, the main player. Uh, They are the ones who have to visit at minimum once per week, but can come out more often if needed. And they make sure that the care plan is making sense, that we have the supplies, we have the medications. If there's a new thing that's changing, they're going to be the first line to help uh, sort through that. They also have bereavement counselors, social workers, so that if that situation is arising at home where you know, we don't have enough support, and the social worker can help sort out ways to, to navigate that. Spiritual counselors, some groups have music therapists. And then there are doctors, they have a much more of a background role in terms of a regulatory role in the hospice team. That being said, um, sometimes you form a relationship with a doctor or a nurse practitioner that, that's really meaningful for you. And so you can request that they remain as your doctor of record, meaning, Anytime the nurse visits and has a, you know, a question for a refill or something, that's the person they're gonna to go to and that person often is still available to keep an open line of communication. But when you're on hospice, your first call for any need or any question goes to the hospice team uh, because frankly, they're gonna be the fastest and the best for addressing something in the moment. know, um, yeah, there are other venues. Um, let me see if I'm gonna talk about that here. I'll talk about that more in a minute. Next slide. <laughs> so just some of the other benefits. Unfortunately, one of those is more pixelated than I thought. Um, but there's the caregiving, um, they have 24-hour phone support. Uh, so there's always somebody who's going to answer a call if it's 2 a.m. and there's some increased pain and you've had a dose of a medication and it's not working. You can call them and they can help talk you through it over the phone. And if that's not working, they could even send somebody out. It's not it's not like an ambulance coming out right away, it's often a few hours, but Um, That phone availability is really nice. They have medications delivered to the house. And one of the other big things is having um, uh, medical equipment like hospital beds. That's all part of the the hospice benefit is that that's covered. Next slide. So some odds and ends about hospice. Um, So hospice is covered by insurance. Just about every insurance I've ever come across. It's a standard Medicare benefit. Um, so that, that shouldn't be an issue. So that care team is covered. What's not covered, as I mentioned, is the caregiving. So if you're at home and and it's just you and your spouse and, um, you know, that's a lot for one person. Sometimes people hire caregivers to help give a eight hour break each day, but that all is privately paid for, and that's rather expensive. Sometimes folks will do hospice at nursing facilities so that they could get that great nursing support around the clock. But kind of a similar situation is that the insurance will pay for the hospice team but not for the room and board, which is rather expensive as well. That's just a huge hole in our healthcare system um, in terms of taking care of folks who have more chronic healthcare needs. Um, If you outlive six months, um, hospice can be renewed. Um, I see that sometimes for folks with with, illnesses like cancer or often with something like dementia. Um, so at six months, it's not just, Hey, we're going to kick you out. Um, at the same time, uh, if you get better, you can unenroll from hospice at any time. Or if, you know, Dr. Stacy calls and says, Hey, something new came through the pipeline. Um, and we've got a new treatment that we'd like to offer you. You can also unenroll from hospice. So you're not railroaded in, um, once you sign up. I do always encourage that it be a really carefully made decision though, um, because if you're kind of coming off and on hospice for things like pneumonias, that I, I think that that generates a lot of confusion and chaos, and so I'd I'd, I'd recommend that's a pretty well considered decision. Um, one thing just for this group in particular um, is I know that, that often there could be a lot of symptom management that goes on for you know, where you receive treatment uh, for your melanoma, and. I, I just anticipate. I, I I don't personally work for a hospice right now. I, what the hospice is supposed to cover, so they get paid a per diem for all the care that you get, um, whether whether they see you that day or not. Um, and so that you know what they hope to do is spend all of that on you know medications that are aimed towards your comfort or treatments that are aimed towards your comfort. And I would certainly think that having Uh, If you need to go visit your ophthalmologist while on hospice because you're having a lot of discomfort around your eye, that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, They often won't cover things or won't find it compatible if that's also going to treat the underlying cancer, which I don't think treating just local symptoms would. However, um, that might be a little bit bit of a back and forth phone call to help them understand uh, why you're needing this. And you may need a little bit of your own advocacy on that. Um, I don't, I just don't, I can't promise something that I'm not gonna actually make the decision on, but just so you know, that might come up. And what I find is that a lot of times, um, hospice medical directors, like the the physicians are kind of the regulators of that. Um, They're often really accessible by phone. So if you need to talk with your ophthalmologist and say, can you talk with them to let them know that, what this is about, why we're needing this, that this is not, you know, to treat the cancer, this is to treat my symptoms. I'm, I would hope that that would then be covered. So let's pause there, next slide. What what questions on that part about hospice? Again, a lot of information, but just kind of an introduction to hospice. Yes? Can you clarify how Yeah, how many, can you, um, is there something specific within the? Mm-hmm. Yeah, great. So, so the question is, like, how, how do medications work with hospice in terms of refills? What meds do we keep? What meds do we stop? Um, you know, I, I would just say, in general, if it's going it to be a medication that's aimed at treating pain or nausea or symptoms, the hospice team is going to take over prescribing that. So those things will, will continue. Um, I often stop medications like atorvastatin. Um, which has a benefit over years and decades, and that's not going to be as important in a prognosis of six months or less, so that kind of med stops. Um, a lot of folks keep their blood pressure meds going because sometimes people get headaches if their blood pressure goes high. Um, but if you're taking like an oral, oral chemotherapy or, or an oral immunotherapy, that will no longer be covered. You can, you know, if you already have a, a month's supply, you can finish off the month, uh, but that won't be renewed. So it it is a little bit of a careful teasing. I know eye drops are probably a really important part of that, and I would hope that eye drops would be continued because I think that those have a ton of benefit for folks. Um, So it is a little bit of a a task of looking through each med and through that lens of is this for comfort or not? Yes. Uh Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is there is there a specific medicine that you're thinking about? Mm. That is a good question because that is um so the question is, you know, if there's other if you're on, let's say, hospice for a metastatic cancer, but you have another illness like pulmonary fibrosis where you have an important medication, um, I would hope that that, that would be continued. The, where the rubber's going to meet the road on that is frankly how expensive it is. Yeah, and so I have a sense that hospice is probably going to give some pushback on writing another prescription for it. Um, th- their model is they get you know, reimbursed a couple hundred dollars per day uh, for all the care, and so that's, wh- whether this is right or wrong, this is where it, it, where they, you know, if it's a $10,000 a month drug, that's probably, or more, <laughs> that's probably going to break their model, and they'll probably give some pushback about that, even if it's not related to your primary diagnosis, yeah, but it's worth a conversation for sure, um, and sometimes folks have supplemental insurance that can help bridge that, but um, yeah, that get, that gets into one of those tricky parts yeah How are hospices regulated? so hospices are regulated so they are they are scrutinized by Medicare usually because uh, a lot of times folks um, are, are doing it through Medicare if you're through commercial hospice um, or um, if you're not on Medicare uh, I, I guess it'd be the other insurance agencies that are looking after it but Medicare does come and do audits of hospitals to utilize um, are, are they Do all the patients on hospice actually meet hospice requirements and are we utilizing these benefits appropriately? And so that's part of the role of all the care members, but that's also part of the role of the physician on the team to really certify, yes, this is a prognosis of this amount. Um, So yeah. What other questions? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so she was asking about uh, would eye injections be covered? I think that that also is something that that you that would probably be a negotiation or a discussion, an explanation with the hospice team to say that this is necessary because this is causing me this symptom. Um, I, I do. I will say hospice. People are often in this field because they really wanna care for folks at this stage of life and they want to um, be helpful. Um, so I, I think if it's a treatment that's you know hundreds or in the short, I, I hate to talk about it in terms of finances, but I think that that's what, because we wanna give everybody everything they can, but often it breaks down to that. Um, one of the other challenges is also, um, as we think about things like injections where you actually have to come into the clinic for it, um, people do tend to you know, become physically weaker. And that process of coming into a clinic becomes more difficult. And so that often also just by itself becomes a little less feasible. Yeah. Okay. So next slide. Actually, we'll go one more slide. So just the, the three big headlines for this conversation. And I, I know, I, I'm wondering if there's a way that I can just send you guys my slides as well. Um, there is a way. Okay, great. I'm getting head nods. So, we'll also just send these slides with my notes and annotations. Um, the three big things that I'd want you to take away are identifying your legal next of kin or assigning a medical provider and including them in these conversations that you're having. People uh, tell me time and again when they're the surrogate, when they're the, you know, the spouse making decisions on behalf of somebody else. They are just so grateful if they've had these conversations with the person before, because it is not an easy position to be in. So including that person is really great. Um, Consider involving palliative care uh, when your disease becomes more advanced um, and when you have increasingly complex decision-making, symptom needs or additional support needs. And then consider hospice when the benefits of life-prolonging treatment um, are feeling smaller and your focus is shifting more towards comfort. So that's when you should be thinking about those things. Um, and there'll be conversations with your oncologist, um, you know, the conversations about hospice should be happening with your palliative care specialist if you brought them on. And, um, so, yeah. so next slide. So it's 9.45. Um, we can, are there, are there other questions right now in the room? Otherwise I can go through a, a, a case example. Yeah, so maybe go through the case, okay. So I'm gonna go through this um, somewhat quickly, keep it somewhat surface level. Um, I'm not an ocular melanoma specialist, so take the timings, take the treatment side effects, take all that with a grain of salt. You need to hear that straight from your oncologist and from your ophthalmologist. Um, so don't don't take that from me right now. What I really just wanna demonstrate is how how a flow of getting palliative care and getting hospice care might, might happen. Um, and that's, and that's, I think, just one of the important things here. So next slide. So I'll, I'll be mostly reading some of these words. Um, you know, Sam's diagnosed with ocular melanoma, a high-risk disease, and no metastasis on initial evaluation. Sam completes proton radiation therapy and is supported by the ophthalmology team for managing symptoms uh, and treatment effects around the eye. Uh, Sam is then followed seri- serially over months and years. And during this phase, while well, cure is still being considered and while all symptom needs and support needs are met by the ophthalmologist and some of the other speakers who have been here um, during this uh, weekend, um, palliative care is not involved. You know, There's not that unmet decision. We've got a clear care plan. There's not that unmet symptom need. There's not that unmet support need. Next slide. So several years after initial treatment, Sam goes to the emergency department with a pneumonia and is found to have spots in the lungs. Sam stabilizes after a few days in the hospital with antibiotics, also gets a biopsy, and then follows up with oncology, who diagnoses that the, that the ocular melanoma has spread to the liver and lungs. And with that, there's no longer a chance for cure, and this will limit Sam's life. So the oncologist did a, you know, gave a really clear uh, Uh, information sharing there. And so the uh, the oncologist went ahead and referred Sam and Sam's loved one to meet with the palliative care team to start to build a relationship and to start avail themselves of that support. If the oncologist didn't do that, I'd recommend that that you ask for that or reach out for that at that stage. Next slide. So they have an initial meeting with a palliative care uh, provider and, and social worker. And this is kind of a a really brief breakdown of those seven domains. I've really tried to condense it here. So Sam has a clear understanding, has heard the oncologist say that on average, the life expectancy is six to nine months and take take my word there with a grain of salt, please. Um, Sam finds that working, socializing with family and friends, getting out on hikes are really motivating and fulfilling and wants to work towards continuing with those things. There's a family trip planned in the coming months. Um, there was some serious pain with the pneumonia, but that's getting better now. Um, Sam felt loopy with the meds and so wants to minimize them if possible. But if, if that kind of pain came back, would Sam would certainly accept the medications again, Sam has a call into a pastor for support. And Sam's spouse has asked to speak with the palliative care social worker, you know, just with that kind of, um, neutral third party, the, the spouse just feels like it'd be easier just to talk one-on-one. Some things are hard to say in front of Sam. So. That the spouse wants that support, and then Sam also identifies and signs a medical power of attorney. Who is the spouse, and so that's pretty straightforward. So next slide. So just right around that same time as the meeting, there's a treatment decision that needs to be made about um, you know how, how to treat this cancer that's spread. And again, take this um, some of these specifics. Um, I, I made them up. So. Um, The decision to make is that the cancer treatment with combined immunotherapy is discussed. There's a low chance that that the cancer will respond uh, and there are risks of side effects. And Sam feels well enough to say, let's try it. I wanna try this. And so they agree to start cancer treatment. Uh, Over the next several months, Sam has infusions every couple weeks, meets with the oncologist monthly, sees the palliative care team every six weeks to help manage the side effects of treatment. And Sam's spouse has uh, phone calls with a social worker every four weeks uh, to be helpful. And they're able to go on their family trip um, and enjoy that. Um, As more time passes past that, repeat testing shows that unfortunately the cancer is growing again despite the treatment. Next slide. So with that new information, they have another meeting with the oncologist, with John, or I'm sorry, not John. That's a... That's a typo I missed. But with Sam and with the spouse, um, the oncologist shares that the remaining treatment options are clinical trials with low expectation, frankly, of a prolonging life. Sam has noticed some changes over time, like increasing fatigue. Um, and the first cancer treatment had a, had a lot of nausea. And just in discussion, they all agree that enrolling in trial doesn't make the most sense for Sam. That being said, Sam, you know, despite the fatigue is still feeling um, okay and wants to have more time with family and would be willing to get some reversible treat things treated like going back to the hospital to treat a pneumonia um sam says it'd be okay to go there for a few days uh, but after that you know, would, would want to come back home uh, sam also says you know, I, I don't want any heroic measures like cpr or intubation and so they complete something called a pulsed plan which is a way of um putting that order in place for for no uh for allowing natural death if it comes so not doing cpr and things like that but this is a really good place for palliative care to occupy where we're not doing cancer treatment anymore but we're not all the way doing hospice we're in this phase where we're just trying to enjoy as much time as we can sam is and so palliative care gonna be really supportive there next slide so in that in that time sam and family continue to meet with the palliative care team get symptoms treated um, you know, as the cancer grows, it's causing a little more pain. Um, Sam engages in the activities that are most important to Sam. And then, unfortunately, an- another uh, infection happens with another hospitalization, and Sam decides from there that things have been changing enough, that, it, that staying at home to be with family and friends is the most important thing from here on out. So they decided to enroll in home hospice. And from the hospital, they had the hospital social worker help out with referrals for that. Next slide. So they arrange for hospice to meet them on the same day uh, as admission, or that, that he's discharged from the hospital. Um, they they create a care plan for how they're going to do things at home. Uh, they really like the palliative care physician, and she agrees to stay on as that physician of record. Um, and Sam did find that while in the hospital, it was a lot easier to get in and out of, um, out of the hospital out of the hospital bed when it could be lowered and raised, and the head could be raised up. So they have one of those delivered to the home. And then The rest of Sam's time is at home uh, with loved ones being supported there. And that's a really quick flyby of of how that process can go from oncology to oncology plus palliative care to mostly palliative care to that palliative care bridging into hospice flow. So next slide. So I I am running a bit over, but I I just wanna be available. Are there other questions that we have right now? Yes. So the is only done when the family and the that they do not want any further yeah, so, And and if folks need to step out to, to take a break, but by all means. But I'll I'll answer the question is about what is a pulse. Other places call it a, a post. It's a physician order for life sustaining treatment. And what it's meant to do is be in order for what to do in emergency situations outside of the hospital, like if somebody dies suddenly, or how to manage if somebody's just really sick. And, um, you know, if, if the default in the country is life prolonging treatment. So if you're still feeling like, yes, I wanna, if I pass away, attempt CPR, or if I'm looking really sick, please bring me to the hospital and I'll go to the ICU if needed, if that's how you're feeling, you don't need to fill one out. But if if you're ever feeling like, if I pass away naturally, I want that to be respected at home, that's a good reason to fill out a post Or if you have a sense of, you know, I'd be okay going back to the hospital, but I, I wouldn't want a breathing tube, that wouldn't be acceptable to me, or going to the ICU wouldn't be acceptable. Um, that's another reason. Or if you just say, I don't want to ever go back to a hospital again. So those are some of the restrictions that you could really easily delineate within a, within a POLST plan, and there are these, neon green forms that um, are there. And part of the point of doing is that it's an act of order. But also in the moment, the people who are around, they might just be panicking. And the the EMTs know to look for these forms. So people often keep it on their counter. And it's just an extra way to make sure that your wishes are, are respected there. Thanks for that question. Others? All right, thanks again, everybody, for for being here today. I, I so appreciate you being here and empowering yourself with this, and thanks for your attention.
0: Thank you so much for joining us today on the I Believe Podcast, brought to you by Castle Biosciences. Please be sure to subscribe, and if you're so inclined, send this episode over to friends, family, and share on your social media to help spread awareness around OM. If you have a moment, leave us a brief review or consider making a donation to the links in the show notes to keep our podcast going. Feel free to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Acure Insight. We'll see you next time on the I Believe Podcast.